Section 25 of The Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Natural History, Volume 4, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 25, Book 18, Chapters 72 to 77. Chapter 72 the harvest the mode of getting in the harvest varies considerably in the vast domains of the provinces of gaul a large hollow frame armed with teeth and supported on two wheels is driven through the standing corn the beasts being yoked behind it the result being that the ears are torn off and fall within the frame in other countries the stalks are cut with a sickle in the middle and the ears are separated by the aid of paddle forks. In some places, again, the corn is torn up by the roots, and it is asserted by those who adopt this plan that it is as good as a light turning up for the ground, whereas in reality they deprive it of its uses. There are differences in other respects also. In places where they thatch their houses with straw, they keep the longest harms for that purpose, and where hay is scarce, they employ the straw for litter. The straw of panic is never used for thatching, and that of millet is mostly burned. Barley straw, however, is always preserved, as being the most agreeable of all as a food for oxen. In the Gallic provinces, panic and millet are gathered, ear by ear, with the aid of a comb carried in the hand. In some places the corn is beaten out by machines upon the threshing-floor, in others by the feet of mares, and in others with flails. The later wheat is cut, the more prolific it is, but if it is got in early, the grain is finer and stronger. The best rule is to cut it before the grain hardens, and just as it is changing colour, though the oracles on husbandry say that it is better to begin the harvest two days too soon than two days too late. Winter and other wheat must be treated exactly the same way both on the threshing-floor and in the granary. Spelt, as it is difficult to be threshed, should be stored with a chaff on, being only disengaged of the straw and the beard. Many countries make use of chaff for hay. The smoother and thinner it is, and the more nearly resembling dust, the better. Hence it is that the chaff of millet is considered the best, that of barley being the next best and that of wheat the worst of all, except for beasts that are hard-worked. In stony places they break the harms when dry with staves, for the cattle to lie upon. If there is a deficiency of chaff, the straw as well is ground for food. The following is the method employed in preparing it. It is cut early and sprinkled with bay salt, after which it is dried and rolled up in trusses, and given to the oxen as wanted, instead of hay. Some persons set fire to the stubble in the field, a plan that has been greatly extolled by Virgil. The chief merit of it is that the seed of the weeds is effectually destroyed. The diversity of the methods employed in harvesting mainly depends upon the extent of the crops and the price of labour. Chapter 73. The Methods of Storing Corn Connected with this branch of our subject is the method of storing corn. Some persons recommend that granaries should be built for the purpose at considerable expense, 
the walls being made of brick, and not less than three feet thick. The corn, they say, should be let in from above, the air being carefully excluded, and no windows allowed. Others, again, say that the granary should have an aspect in no direction but the northeast or north, and that the walls should be built without lime, that substance being extremely injurious to corn. As to what we find recommended in reference to America of olives, we have already mentioned it on a former occasion. In some places they build their granaries of wood and upon pillars, thinking it the best plan to leave access for the air on every side, and from below even. Some persons think, however, that the grain diminishes in bulk if laid on a floor above the level of the ground, and that it is liable to ferment beneath a roof of tiles. Many persons say, too, that the grain should never be stirred up to air it, as the weevil is never known to penetrate beyond four fingers in depth. Consequently, beyond that depth there is no danger. According to Columella, the west wind is beneficial to grain, a thing that surprises me, as that wind is generally a very parching one. Some persons recommend that, before housing the corn, a bramble frog should be hung up by one of the hind legs at the threshold of the granary. To me it appears that the most important precaution of all is to house the grain at the proper time, for if it is unripe when cut, and not sufficiently firm, or if it is got in in a heated state, it follows of necessity that noxious insects will breed in it. There are several causes which contribute to the preservation of grain. The outer coats in some kinds are more numerous, as in millet, for instance. The juices are of an oleaginous nature, and so supply ample moisture, as in sesame, for example, while in other kinds, again, they are naturally bitter, as in the lupine and the chichling vetch. It is in wheat, more particularly, that insects breed, as it is apt to heat from the density of its juices, and the grain is covered with a thick bran. In barley the chaff is thinner, and the same is the case with all the leguminous seeds. It is for this reason that they do not ordinarily breed insects. The bean, however, is covered with a coat of a thicker substance, and hence it is that it ferments. Some persons sprinkle wheat, in order to make it keep the longer, with a murka of olives, a quadrantal to a thousand modi. Others, again, with powdered chalcidian or carrion chalk, or with wormwood. There is a certain earth found at Olynthus, and at Cerinthus in Ubia, which prevents grain from spoiling. If garnered in the ear, grain is hardly ever found to suffer any injury. The best plan, however, of preserving grain is to lay it up in trenches, called Siri, as they do in Cappadocia, Thracia, Spain, and at blank in Africa. Particular care is taken to dig these trenches in a dry soil, and a layer of chaff is then placed at the bottom. The grain, too, is always stored in the ear. In this case, if no air is allowed to penetrate to the corn, we may rest assured that no noxious insect will ever breed in it. Varro says that wheat, if thus stored, will keep as long as fifty years, and millet a hundred, and he assures us that beans and other leguminous grain, if put away in oil jars with a covering of ashes, will keep for a great length of time. He makes a statement also to the effect that some beans were preserved in a cavern in Ambracia from the time of King Pyrrhus until the piratical war of Pompeius Magnus, a period of about two hundred and twenty years. 
The chickpea is the only grain in which no insect will breed while in the granary. Some persons place upon the heaps of the leguminous grains pitches full of vinegar and coated with pitch, a stratum of ashes being laid beneath, and they fancy that if this is done no injury will happen. Some, again, store them in vessels which have held salted provisions, with a coating of plaster on the top, while other persons are in the habit of sprinkling lentils with vinegar, scented with laser, and, when dry, giving them a covering of oil. But the most effectual method of all is to get in everything that you would preserve from injury at the time of the moon's conjunction, and hence it is of the greatest importance to know, when getting in the harvest, whether it is for garnering or whether for immediate sale. If cut during the increase of the moon, grain will increase in size." Chapter 74. The Vintage and the Works of Autumn. In accordance with the ordinary divisions of the year, we now come to autumn, a period which extends from the setting of the lyre to the autumnal equinox, and from that to the setting of the virgili and the beginning of winter. In these intervals, the more important periods are marked by the rising of the horse of the people of Attica, in the evening of the day before the Ides of August, upon which day also the dolphin sets in Egypt, and, according to Caesar, in Italy. On the eleventh, before the calends of September, the star called the Vintager begins to rise in the morning, according to Caesar's reckoning, and to the people of Assyria, it announces the ripening of the vintage, a sure sign of which is the change of colour in the grape. On the fifth, before the calends of September, the arrow sets in Assyria, and the Etesian winds cease to blow. On the nones of September, the vintager rises in Egypt, and in the morning of that day, Arcturus rises to the people of Attica. On the same morning, too, the arrow sets. On the fifth, before the Ides of September, according to Caesar, the she-goat rises in the evening, and one half of Arcturus becomes visible on the day before the Ides of September, being portentous of boisterous weather for five days, both by land and sea. The theory relative to the effects produced by Arcturus is stated in the following terms. If showers prevail, it is said, at the setting of the dolphin, they will not cease so long as Arcturus is visible. The departure of the swallows may be looked upon as the sign of the rising of Arcturus, for if overtaken by it, they are sure to perish." On the sixteenth day before the calends of October, the ear of corn, which Virgo holds, rises to the people of Egypt in the morning, and by this day the Etesian winds have quite ceased to blow. According to Caesar, this constellation rises on the fourteenth before the calends, and it affords its prognostics to the Assyrians on the thirteenth. On the eleventh before the calends of October, the point of junction in Piscus disappears, and upon the eighth, is the autumnal equinox. It is a remarkable fact, and rarely the case, that Philippus, Callippus, Dositheus, Parmeniscus, Conon, Criton, Democritus, and Eudoxus all agree that the she-goat rises in the morning of the fourth before the calends of October, and on the third the kids. On the sixth day before the nones of October, the crown rises in the morning to the people of Attica, and upon the morning of the fifth the charioteer sets. 
On the fourth before the nonus of October, the crown, according to Caesar's reckoning, begins to rise, and on the evening of the day after is the setting of the consolation of the kids. On the eighth before the Ides of October, according to Caesar, the bright star rises that shines in the crown, and on the evening of the sixth before the Ides of the Virgiliae, rise. Upon the Ides of October, the crown is wholly risen. On the seventeenth before the calends of November, the succulae rise in the evening, and on the day before the calends, according to Caesar's reckoning, Arcturus sets, and the seculi rise with the sun. In the evening of the fourth day before the nonus of November, Arcturus sets. On the fifth before the Ides of November, Orion's sword begins to set, and on the third before the Ides, the Virgiliae set. In this interval of time, the rural operations consist in sowing rape and turnips upon the days which have been mentioned on a previous occasion. The people in the country are of opinion that it is not a good plan to sow rape after the departure of the stork, but for my own part, I am of opinion that it should be sown after the vulcanalia, and the early kind at the same time as panic. After the setting of the lyre, vetches should be sown, kidney beans and hay grass. It is generally recommended that this should be done while the moon is in conjunction. This, too, is the proper time for gathering in the leaves. It is fair work for one woodman to fill four baskets in the day. If the leaves are gathered while the moon is on the wane, they will not decay. They ought not to be dry, however, when gathered. The ancients were of opinion that the vintage is never ripe before the equinox, but at the present day I find that it is gathered in before that period. It will be as well, therefore, to give the signs and indications by which the proper moment may be exactly ascertained. The rules for getting in the vintage are to the following effect. Never gather the grape in a heated state, or in other words, when the weather is dry, and before the rains have fallen. Nor ought it to be gathered when covered with dew, or in other words, when dews have fallen during the night, nor yet before the dews have been dispelled by the sun. Commence the vintage when the bearing shoots begin to recline upon the stem, or when, after a grape is removed from the bunch, the space left empty is not filled up, this being a sure proof that the berry has ceased to increase in size. It is of the greatest consequence to the grape that it should be gathered while the moon is on the increase. Each pressing should fill twenty culi, that being the fair proportion. To fill twenty culae and vats from twenty jugera of vineyard, a single press will be enough. In pressing the grape, some persons use a single press board, but it is a better plan to employ two, however large the single ones may be. It is the length of them that is of the greatest consequence, and not the thickness. If wide, however, they press the fruit all the better. The ancients used to screw down the press-boards with ropes and leather tongs worked by levers. Within the last hundred years the Greek press has been invented, with thick spiral grooves running down the stem. To this stem there are spokes attached, which project like the rays of a star, and by means of which the stem is made to lift a box filled with stones, a method that is very highly approved of. It is only within the last two-and-twenty years that a plan has been discovered of employing smaller press-boards and a less unwieldy press. To effect this, the height has been reduced, and the stem of the screw placed in the middle, and the whole pressure, 
being concentrated upon broad planks placed over the grapes, which are covered also with heavy weights above. This is the proper time for gathering fruit. The best moment for doing so is when it has begun to fall through ripeness, and not from the effect of the weather. This is the season, too, for extracting the lees of wine, and for boiling the fruitum. This last must be done on a night when there is no moon, or, if it is a full moon, in the daytime. At other times of the year it must be done either before the moon has risen, or after it has set. The grapes employed for this purpose should never be gathered from a young vine, nor yet from a tree that is grown in a marshy spot, nor should any grapes be used but those that are perfectly ripe. The liquor, too, should never be skimmed with anything but a leaf, for if the vessel should happen to be touched with wood, the liquor, it is generally thought, will have a burnt and smoky flavour. The proper time for the vintage is between the equinox and the setting of the Virgilii a period of forty-four days. It is a saying among the growers that to pitch wine-vessels after that day, in consequence of the coldness of the weather, is only so much time lost. Still, however, I have seen before now persons getting in the vintage on the calends of January, even in consequence of the want of wine-vessels, and putting the must into receivers, or else pouring the old wine out of its vessels, to make room for new liquor of a very doubtful quality." This, however, happens not so often in consequence of an overabundant crop as through carelessness, or else the avarice which leads people to wait for a rise in prices. The method that is adopted by the most economical managers is to use the produce supplied by each year, and this, too, is found in the end the most lucrative mode of proceeding. As for the other details relative to wines, they have been discussed at sufficient length already, and it has been stated on a previous occasion that, as soon as the vintage is got in, the olives should at once be gathered, with other particulars relative to the olive, after the setting of the Virgilii. Chapter 75. The Revolutions of the Moon. I shall now proceed to add some necessary information relative to the moon, the winds, and certain signs and prognostics, in order that I may complete the observations I have to make with reference to the sidereal system. Virgil has even gone so far, in imitation of Democritus, as to assign certain operations to certain days of the moon. But my sole object shall be, as indeed it has been throughout this work, to consult that utility which is based upon a knowledge and appreciation of general principles. All vegetable productions are cut, gathered and housed to more advantage, while the moon is on the wane, than while it is on the increase. Manure must never be touched except when the moon is on the wane, and land must be manured more particularly while the moon is in conjunction, or else at the first quarter. Take care to gelt your boars, bulls, rams, and kids while the moon is on the wane. Put eggs under the hen at a new moon. Make your ditches in the night-time when the moon is at full. Cover up the roots of trees while the moon is at full. Where the soil is humid, put in seed at the moon's conjunction, and during the four days about that period. It is generally recommended, too, to give an airing to corn and the leguminous grains, and to garner them, towards the end of the moon, to make seed-plots when the moon is above the horizon, and to tread out the grape, to fell timber, and to do many other things that have been mentioned in their respective places, when the moon is below it. The observation of the moon in general, as already observed in the second book, is not so very easy, 
but what I am about here to state even rustics will be able to comprehend. So long as the moon is in the west, and during the earlier hours of the night, she will be on the increase, and one half of her disk will be perceived. But when the moon is seen to rise at sunset, and opposite to the sun, so that they are both perceptible at the same moment, she will be at full. Again, as often as the moon rises in the east, and does not give her light in the earlier hours of the night, but shows herself during a portion of the day, she will be on the wane, and one half of her only will again be perceptible. When the moon has ceased to be visible, she is in conjunction, a period known to us as interlunium. During the conjunction, the moon will be above the horizon the same time as the sun, for the whole of the first day. On the second, she will advance upon the night ten-twelfths of an hour and one-fourth of a twelfth. On the third day the same as on the second, and, blank, so on in succession up to the fifteenth day, the same proportional parts of an hour being added each day. On the fifteenth day she will be of the horizon all night, and below it all day. On the sixteenth she will remain below the horizon ten-twelfths of an hour, and one-fourth of a twelfth, at the first hour of the night, and so on in the same proportion day after day, up to the period of her conjunction, and thus the same time which, by remaining under the horizon, she withdraws from the first part of the night, she will add to the end of the night by remaining above the horizon. Her revolutions, too, will occupy thirty days one month, and twenty-nine the next, and so on alternately. Such is the theory of the revolutions of the moon. Chapter 76 the theory of the winds. The theory of the winds is of a somewhat more intricate nature. After observing the quarter in which the sun rises on any given day, at the sixth hour of the day, take your position in such a manner as at the point of the sun's rising on your left. You will then have the south directly facing you, and the north at your back. A line drawn through a field in this direction is called the cardinal line. The observer must then turn round, so as to look upon his shadow, for it will be behind him. Having thus changed his position, so as to bring the point of the sun's rising on that day to the right, and that of his setting to the left, it will be the sixth hour of the day, at the moment when the shadow straight before him is the shortest. Through the middle of this shadow, taken lengthwise, a furrow must be traced in the ground with a hoe, or else a line drawn with ashes some twenty feet in length, say. In the middle of this line, or in other words, at the tenth foot in it, a small circle must then be described. To this circle we may give the name of the umbilicus, or navel. That point in the line which lies on the side of the head of the shadow will be the point from which the north wind blows. You who are engaged in pruning trees, be it your care that the incisions made in the wood do not face this point, nor should the vine-trees or the vines have this aspect, except in the climates of Africa, Sarini, or Egypt. When the wind blows, too, from this point, you must never plough, nor, in fact, attempt any other of the operations of which we shall have to make mention. That part of the line which lies between the umbilicus and the feet of the shadow will look towards the south, and indicate the point from which the south wind blows, to which, as already mentioned, the Greeks have given the name of notus. When the wind comes from this quarter, 
you, husbandmen, must never fell wood or touch the vine. In Italy this wind is either humid or else of a burning heat, and in Africa it is accompanied with intense heat and fine clear weather. In Italy the bearing branches should be trained to face this quarter, but the incisions made in the trees or vines when pruned must never face it. Let those be on their guard against this wind upon the four days at the rising of the Virgiliae, who are engaged in planting the olive, as well as those who are employed in the operations of grafting or inoculating. It will be as well, too, here to give some advice in reference to the climate of Italy, as to certain precautions to be observed at certain hours of the day. You, woodman, must never lop the branches in the middle of the day, and you, shepherd, when you see midday approaching in summer, and the shadow gradually decreasing, drive your flocks from out of the sun into some well-shaded spot. When you lead the flocks to pasture in summer, let them face the west before midday, and after that time the east. If this precaution is not adopted, calamitous results will ensue. The same, too, if the flocks are led in winter or spring to pastures covered with dew. Nor must you let them feed with their faces to the north, as already mentioned, for the wind will either close their eyes or else make them bleared, and they will die of looseness. If you wish to have females, you should let the dams have their faces towards the north while being covered. Chapter 77 The Laying Out of Lands According to the Points of the Wind We have already stated that the umbilicus should be described in the middle of the line. Let another line be drawn transversely through the middle of it, and it will be found to run from due east to due west. A trench cut through the land in accordance with this line is known by the name of decumanus. Two other lines must then be traced obliquely across them in the form of the letter X, in such a way as to run exactly from right and left of the northern point to left and right of the southern one. All these lines must pass through the centre of the umbilicus, and all must be of corresponding length and at equal distances. This method should always be adopted in laying out land, or if it should be found necessary to employ it frequently, a plan of it may be made in wood, sticks of equal length being fixed upon the surface of a small tambour, but perfectly round. In the method which I am here explaining, it is necessary to point out one precaution that must always be observed by those who are unacquainted with the subject. The point that must be verified first of all is the south, as that is always the same, but the sun, it must be remembered, rises every day at a point in the heavens different to that of his rising on the day before, so that the east must never be taken as the basis for tracing the lines. Having now ascertained the various points of the heavens, the extremity of the line that is nearest to the north, but lying to the east of it, will indicate the solstitial rising, or in other words, the rising of the sun on the longest day, as also the point from which the wind Aquilo blows, known to the Greeks by the name of Boreas. You should plant all trees and vines facing this point, but take care never to plough or sow corn or plant in seed plots while this wind is blowing, for it has the effect of drying up and blasting the roots of the trees while being transplanted. Be taught in time, one thing is good for grown trees, another for them while they are but young. Nor have I forgotten the fact that it is at this point of the heavens that the Greeks place the winds 
to which they give the name of Cacias. Aristotle, a man of most extensive learning, who has assigned Cacias to this position, explains that it is in consequence of the convexity of the earth that Aquilo blows in an opposite direction to the wind called Africus. The agriculturist, however, has nothing to fear from Aquilo, in respect to the operations before mentioned, all the year through. For this wind is softened by the sun in the middle of the summer, and, changing its name, is known by that of Aetesius. When you feel the cold, then, be on your guard, for whatever the noxious effects that are attributed to Aquilo, the more sensibly will they be felt when the wind blows from due north. In Asia, Greece, Spain, the coasts of Italy, Campania, and Apulia, the trees that support the vines, as well as the vines themselves, should have an aspect towards the north-east. If you wish to have male produce, let the flock feed in such a way that this wind may have the opportunity of fecundating the male, whose office it is to fecundate the females. The wind Africus, known to the Greeks by the name of Lips, blows from the southwest, the opposite point to Aquilo. When animals, after coupling, turn their heads toward this quarter, you may be sure that female produce has been conceived. The third line from the north, which we have drawn transversely through the shadow, and called by the name of Decumanus, will point due east, and from this quarter the wind Subsolanus blows, by the Greeks called Apeliotis. It is to this point that, in healthy localities, farmhouses and vineyards are made to look. This wind is accompanied with soft, gentle showers. Favonius, however, the wind that blows from due west, the opposite quarter to it, is of a drier nature. By the Greeks it is known as Zephyrus. Cato has recommended that olive yards should look due west. It is this wind that begins the spring and opens the earth. It is moderately cool but healthy. As soon as it begins to prevail, it indicates that the time has arrived for pruning the vine, weeding the corn, planting trees, grafting fruit trees, and trimming the olive, for its breezes are productive of the most nutritious effects. The fourth line from the north, and the one that lies nearest the south on the eastern side, will indicate the point of the sun's rising at the winter solstice, and the wind Volturnus, known by the name of Eurus to the Greeks. This wind is warm and dry, and beehives and vineyards in the climates of Italy and the Gallic provinces should face this quarter. Directly opposite to Volturnus, the wind chorus blows. It indicates the point of the sun's setting at the summer solstice, and lies on the western side next to the north. By the Greeks it is called Argestus, and is one of the very coldest of the winds, which, in fact, is the case with all the winds that blow from the north. This wind, too, brings hailstorms with it, for which reason it is necessary to be on our guard against it no less than the north. If Volturnus begins to blow from a clear quarter of the heavens, it will not last till night. But if it is subsolanus, it will prevail for the greater part of the night. Whatever the wind that may happen to be blowing, if it is accompanied by heat, it will be sure to last for several days. The earth announces the approach of Aquilo by drying on a sudden, while in the approach of Auster the surface becomes moist without any apparent cause. End of section 25